Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. As always, we're very thankful for your presence, and uh, we're just thankful to the God of heaven who's blessed us with another opportunity to be together. So my daughter walked into my office last night, and she said, what are you preaching about tomorrow? And I said, you probably think it's going to be about change. I said, it's not. It's going to be about being different. <laughs> Thinking differently, living differently, maybe the same thing. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37 is where we're starting this morning. We're starting with a question that was asked of our Lord. Our Lord was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment in the law? To which he responded, the first and great commandment in the law is the hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God is really asking for your entire being, all that you are and all that you have, to love him with that. Our title this morning comes out of that thought, and that is, be good to yourself. We're talking about being different. We're talking about changing, and part of that is to change the way you think of you and to be good to yourself. It's not until I preach a sermon that I hear the sermon, and so I heard myself say at 8 o'clock this thing, and then I thought, well, maybe some clarity should be given because when we think about being good to ourselves and loving ourselves, one of the reasons we're resisting is we immediately think, aha, it's my turn. And I finally get to tell them, because it's not about you, it's about me. And I'm going to, that's not what I'm saying. That's not, not what I'm saying at all. Loving yourself is a biblical concept, and it entails then a biblical approach to doing that. Loving yourself properly, spiritually, but nonetheless, loving yourself and being good to yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. He is saying we should love ourselves. Now, he says first you're to love God with all of your being, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and everything that is us. We're to love God with that. But then he says the second is like unto it, and he encompasses all of the law, all of the law in these two commandments. Back behind all of them is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And because of the order, people would think probably that you should love God, and then you should love others, and then you should put yourself last. And that may be a way a lot of people live, and they end up frustrated and sometimes angry in their attempts to do that, probably because that's not really what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's actually by way of order, you're loving God, and then you're loving you. And then you're using that love to love your neighbor. That's what the Bible is teaching. How are you going to love your neighbor as in the manner in which you love yourself? You're going to take that love and use it on your neighbor. You're going to give your neighbor the love you have for you. And so you need that love first to give. That's the way the Bible teaches it. We're to love ourselves. God made us in his image. And remember, that's really where we began, the image of God. We're to love because of that. We're to love God. First John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. 
We're to love ourselves because we're made in the image of God. And then we're to use that love to love other people. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul couches it that way as he ultimately talks about Christ and the church, but he uses marriage as the illustration. And in verse 28 and 29, here's what he says to husbands. In the same way, that is, as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, in the same way, Husbands should love their wives. How would they do that? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. A husband loves himself, nourishes himself, cherishes himself, and then he is to take that same love which he has for himself and give that to his wife. You've heard people say sometimes you can't love somebody else if you don't love yourself. Well, that's the point. You're to love you, and you're to be good to you. Our thoughts, words, and deeds about ourselves should reflect love and goodness for ourselves. The idea of changing and becoming something other than what we are is rooted here in this concept of loving ourselves biblically, spiritually, and properly. If you have your Bibles, look at Philippians chapter 4 and notice what the Apostle Paul says here. Apply these words to yourself. In verse number 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, you could have moderation there or some other word for reasonableness. But the word means suitable, fair, reasonable, gentle, mild, patient, appropriate. Ask yourself, is that how you treat you? Is the way you treat yourself reasonable? suitable, fair, gentle, mild, appropriate. Have you ever berated yourself? Have you ever put yourself down? Have you ever been unreasonable to yourself? A lot of people are. I hear them say it. Sometimes people say things like this, well, I'm just a perfectionist. Well, I can guarantee you, you're being unreasonable to yourself. Guarantee you, you're being unreasonable. Why not? Because you're not perfect. How are you going to be a perfectionist if you're not perfect? Well, I'm striving for perfection. Okay, well, how many times are you messing up the process? Why don't you give you a break and strive for faithfulness? Why don't you do that? You strive for consistency. Why don't you do that? But it's not fair. Is the way you treat yourself reasonable and suitable? Note the next verse. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Some people who are anxious often view the outside circumstances as making them anxious and that they have no say. And yet Paul puts it on the person. Do not be anxious. Well, who is that? He's not saying he's controlling the outside circumstances, but the way some people talk it, they excuse themselves. Like, I ain't got nothing to do with it. I'm just anxious. Well, you're doing that to you. You're allowing you to be anxious. 
You're allowing your mind to be agitated. You're allowing yourself to be stirred up. And what does it affect? Everything. It affects your mind. It affects your body. It affects your health. It affects your well-being. It affects your, it affects everything. Well, who's doing it? The way people talk, you would think the world is doing this to me. You know the world is wicked for everybody. You know the world's unfair to everybody. You know the likes of bounce balls are not consistent for everybody. And yet you make the picture seem like it's only you and there's nothing. How is the person right next to you calm in the exact same environment? How is the person right next to you at peace in the exact same environment? The Bible says do not, which means you're in control of it. Do you allow yourself to be agitated of mind? If so, what's your solution? Paul has a solution here. He says, be not anxious for nothing, but by, in everything by prayer. Anxious people should have a strong prayer life because they should be led to prayer frequently. They should be supplicating to God, and they should be making their, with thanksgiving, letting their requests be made known unto God. God is on my mind. I want to talk to you. God is on my mind. I want to talk to you. I want to let you know what I'm going through. I want to talk to you. I want to find you. I want to be with you. I want you to talk to me. I want to hear you, what you have to say. It's a conversation. I want God to talk too. And when God talks, you can find it in his word. In fact, notice what Paul says next. And the peace of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what's agitated. If you do pray, does God give you peace? Does God guard your heart and mind? If you have no peace before and after the prayer, how would you explain the verses? It seems very clear that the intention is that the prayer to God brings peace of mind. Coincidentally, these words are written by a man who is in prison. He is in prison, having been falsely accused and having been beaten before he was put there. And in that prison around midnight, Acts 16, 25, he's singing and praying. Agitated of mind? No, sir, no, ma'am. Why not? He'll say it in this book, Christ is still with me. You know Christ doesn't leave his people if they go to prison. He doesn't leave them. Christ doesn't leave his people if, if, if they are punished unjustly. He doesn't leave them. Paul is comforted with peace in the prison, and now he writes a letter to people who are free, who are persecuted, and tells them, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Pray to God. The peace of God passes all understanding. How is it that a person who is beaten, thrust into prison, can sing and pray at midnight and be at peace and write a letter to people who are persecuted and tell them, don't be agitated, be at peace. And those of us who have none of those things, no persecution, no beatings, no thrust into prison, have agitation and can't have peace. No, be good to yourself. Follow these things that Paul says. He goes on, though, and he says in verse number 8, Finally, brethren, and maybe this gets to the root of the issue. Whatsoever thing is true, whatsoever thing is honorable, whatsoever thing is just, whatsoever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think. You do appreciate that back up there in verse number 6, 
when he says, be not anxious, that's a matter of thinking. That's a matter of the mind. That's a matter of what's happening inside. Paul says, think about these things. Now, he means those in their ultimate sense, whatever is true. If you could go back in your mind far enough, that's where actually we began. We said, we're going to talk about the image of God. And before we did that, looking back at my notes, the first sermon said, but first, let's talk about truth. Because whatever the Bible says is true, and that truth needs to be believed. And what does the Bible say about you? It says you share the image of God. That truth needs to be believed. And if that truth is believed, then that can bring about the peace and the calm and the tranquility and the worth and all of the things with which we struggle if that truth is believed. And then if it's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if it's excellent, let's then think on these things. But let's make it personal then. Is what you think about you true? Is what you think about you honorable? Is what you think about you fair? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it excellent? Have you heard you talk about you? Have you heard humans talk about other humans? Have you heard how hard and difficult and harsh we can be on other humans? Maybe you've heard them talk about other humans and refer to them as a host of bad words like dumb and stupid and so forth and so We talk about other humans like that sometimes. Somebody does that, what would you say? But I trust you wouldn't then turn around and say the same things about the human that is you. Biblically speaking, we're supposed to love ourselves. We're supposed to be good to ourselves. We're supposed to think highly of ourselves expressly because we share the image of God. I can't help thinking in my mind that on some level, what you and I think about the image of humans, we have to say that about God. We share his image. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 3, the Bible says, For I say through the grace that was given to me to every man among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but so to think as to think soberly according to God had dealt to each man a measure of faith. And somebody might say, see there, I told you, you shouldn't be thinking too highly. You shouldn't be thinking highly of yourself. The verse doesn't say you shouldn't think highly of yourself. It says, rather, you should not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There is then an appropriate highness. There is a level at which you should think high and it's acceptable. And then you could exceed that, and you'd be going overboard. You'd be thinking too highly, more highly. Well, what would it mean then to think more highly? In the book of Romans, it's about justification, about how God makes a man and declares a person right in his presence. And so, if I thought I didn't need God, that would be too high. The issue in the book is sin. If I thought I didn't sin, that would be too high. The Savior in the book is Jesus. If I thought I didn't need Jesus, that would be too high. Forgiveness is touched on in the book. If I didn't think I needed forgiveness, that would be too high. Grace is the means of our pardon. If I didn't think I needed grace, that would be too high. If I thought I could justify myself, that would be too high. There is a way where you could think too highly. Don't think more highly than you ought to think, but there is an appropriate highness. What would that be? Well, I'm made in the image of God. I'm loved by God. 
The gospel has been obeyed. God sent that and gave that to me. Christ is my Lord, my King, my Savior. I'm saved by His grace through His blood. Heaven is ultimately my home. Should I not think highly about all of those things? There's cause to think highly, just not too highly or more highly than I ought to think. Three points then this morning we want to note relative to being good to ourselves. Number one, if you have your Bibles, it's there in Ephesians chapter 2 in the first 16 verses. The Apostle Paul talks about the Gentiles and the Jews and their past. And he talks about how God has forgiven them and has been merciful to them. And ultimately how God through them has made peace. And so point number one is be patient with yourself. There is a change that has happened to the brethren in Ephesus. When Paul arrived there, they were idolatrous people, Acts 19. And now that they have the gospel, they've changed and become different. In fact, in chapter 4, he'll say, you can no longer walk like the other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind because you've learned Christ. But they went a long way the other way in sin. And so he says that in the first two or three verses. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's noteworthy that he doesn't say you were spiritually dead. That's not what he says. What he says is you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. You'll notice the progression of their life. They were dead in trespasses and sins. They walked in it according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of the air, now working in the children of disobedience. He says that's the way you were. He'll say it again throughout the book. In verse number three, he says we were too. He does this frequently in the book of Ephesians, Galatians, Romans, where he goes back and forth between Jew and Gentile. It's important to note that about Paul's writings. Paul is a Jew. Now, he's also an apostle. He's also a Christian. However, when he talks about us and you, he very often is talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he says, you were this way. And he says, we were this way, much like Romans 1, 2, and 3 says that. The Gentiles were under sin. The Jews, you did the same things. Chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He says, you were that way. We were that way. We walked that way. When it comes to change, it's important to appreciate you may have been going the wrong way a long time. And while you can and should make up your mind to stop in your tracks, turn, convert, and come, it might be the case that as you're coming, we're talking about now growth and maturation and sanctification. And as you do that, you should be patient with yourself. Maybe you might stumble. Maybe you might fall. Maybe you might make a mistake. Maybe it might feel like I take one step forward and two steps back. Maybe in the process of changing, you're, you're changing some, some things around you as well. But sometimes people can be so hard on themselves that one mistake, one slip up, one failure sinks the entire process. Well, I made it, I messed it up, and look at it, it's a mess. And then they talk to themselves in a very negative way. They look in the mirror and say, I knew you weren't going to do it. They tell themselves, I knew you couldn't make it. You're a fraud. You're a fake. You're never going to do anything you say. You never keep your word. How many times have you promised? How many times? And they just go in, beat themselves down into a pulp, and before you know it, they self-fulfill their own prophecy. 
You go a long way one way, by all means, stop, pivot, turn, but then appreciate there is a whole walk now that has to be done in the other direction. And that walk in the light, 1 John 1, 7, includes the possibility of stumbling, the possibility of falling. And if so, God will forgive, and you need to be good to yourself by being patient with yourself. Point number two, be positive and truthful to yourself. Go back to the book of Philippians, and let's jump into chapter 3. And again, as you consider these things, apply them to you. The apostle Paul was once Saul of Tarsus. He changed his heart, his mind, changed the life that he was living. He gave that life to Jesus. And for Paul, it is safe to say Jesus was his everything. Make him your everything. Be positive, be truthful, but make Jesus your everything, your goal, your example, your help, your Savior, your Lord, your King. That's what he is for Paul. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 7, some of the things Paul says, in verse number 7 he says, count everything lost for Christ. In verse number 7 he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Well, what things had Paul gained? That would be the first six verses. It's not only here, but he talks about it. He says in verse number three, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, but we put no confidence in the flesh. Here's another one of those Jewish references, that Jew and Gentile thing. He says here, circumcised of his own past. He says in verse four, although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to do that, I have more. I could put confidence in the flesh. And once he did, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal persecuting the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But what things were gained to me, he had gained. In Galatians, he will say that he was rising in the ranks above many his equals. He had much gain. You know, sometimes maybe you look back on your life and, and the gains that, that, that you had in your life, the very things you're trying to change at one point seemed like they were good things for you. Seems like they were things you had an advantage of. Seems like they were gains. Paul says those things, whatever they were, I count them loss for Christ. Comparatively speaking, that is not worth Jesus. In fact, he goes on to say he wants to know Jesus more than anything else. He says it twice, verse 8 and verse number 10. He says in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but rubbish or dung. He goes on to say in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. For Paul, Jesus was everything. I want to know him more than I want to know anything else or anyone else. I'm not suggesting to you that you shouldn't be a learner. You should be, by all means, be a lifelong learner. But when you're learning, learn Jesus. Send him to the top of the things you want to know in this world, rather who you want to know. I want to know Jesus. That's what Paul's position is. 
Here was a man who was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel. Here was a man with reference to the law, was absolutely righteous. Here was a man with an education and all of the schools of knowledge. He had it all. And Paul says, with reference to all that I know, he could speak to the philosophers. He could speak to the rabbis. He, could, he had knowledge. He says, I want to know Jesus more than anything and anyone else. In verse number nine, he talks about faith in Jesus. Now, again, with reference to the context, he's talking about justification and how Christ does that by faith. Same thing in the book of Romans, same thing in the book of Galatians. He says he may be found in him, Paul does, not having a righteousness of my own from the law. See Romans 10, 1 to 3 or 4. See Romans 9, 1 to 4. He says, not having a righteousness of my own, but the, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You know, one of the things that you and I need to do in our lives is, is make faith the central figure of our lives. That things flow from a position of faith. That we don't make this distinction between, well, this is my spiritual life and over here is my physical life. It's important to understand that the natural and the spiritual really the spiritual is how you use the natural. That's the way it's supposed to be. The spiritual is how we navigate the natural. That's the way it's supposed to be. But it's the spiritual that undergirds it all. It's faith in God that undergirds everything. And so often in our lives, the things that need changing are a matter of what's happening in our mind, a matter of what we trust, a matter of who we know, a matter of depending on ourselves or some other, or a matter of trusting in Jesus. Here is God and Jesus and the Word saying one thing, and here is my life over here, and now I have to make a decision. Do I trust that, or do I go about it this way? Do I live for me and I rely on my wisdom, or do I trust God's wisdom? It's a matter of faith. And Paul says, I want mine in Jesus. He ultimately wants to seek and commune with God and with Christ, and that's what he says in 10 and 11. He says in 10 that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his own joint participation, to know him, to fellowship with his sufferings, to be conformed to his death, in order that I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Paul seems to, in his life, always be looking heavenward. He's always talking about going home to be with God, that the things he does here are rooted in the life to live after here, the glory of God, the fellowship of Jesus, the following of the Spirit. It's always pointing him heavenward. Seek those things which are above. Set your affections on things above. Seems to always be where Paul's mind is. Part of being good to ourselves is to be honest with ourselves. And Paul had to come to that realization too. He says in Acts 26 in verse number nine, I thought within myself I should do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did. And then he learned Jesus. He turned his heart, turned his mind. The truth is Paul was not living for God. The truth is Paul was not doing what God wanted. The truth is God didn't want him working contrary to Jesus. That's the truth. Paul came to understand that. Part of being good to ourselves is to be honest to ourselves. Is the action you're taking good for you? Is the thing in which you're engaged good for you? Is it good to you? Is it something you're going to benefit from, something that's going to bless your life? Or do you know in advance this is detrimental? 
Do you know in advance you're going to be the one hurting after it's over? Honesty means telling yourself all the truth. And sometimes the truth doesn't appear to be positive in nature, but the truth needs to be told to you by you. The truth is, you can't handle something right now. And if that's the truth, you need to say that to yourself. It might be the truth for you. You can't handle that. And as a result of that, you need to avoid this place and this thing. You need to. What happens sometimes, though, is people look at other people who seemingly can handle it, and then they say, well, if they can, I can. That's not always the case. In 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, Paul talks about eating meat offered to idols. And he will say, we know an idol is nothing. There's only one God. We know that. But not everybody has that knowledge. And if someone sees you with that knowledge eating then in the temple, in the shambles, if they see you doing it, they might be emboldened to do it themselves and hurt their own conscience because they can't and they shouldn't be doing it. They don't have the same maturity level. And so Paul says to the stronger person, he says, you then ought to consider them. But the person in question ought to be able also to tell themselves, listen, it's not for me. The truth is, it might be the case that this person is not good for you. This relationship is not good for you. You need to let it go. That's also the truth. You need to tell yourself that sometimes. It might just be the truth. The truth is you need help with this issue. Well, if you need the help with the issue, tell yourself the truth. Stop telling yourself you can handle it if you know you can't handle it. Stop telling yourself you're fine if you know you're not fine. Instead, tell yourself, I need help, and then get some help. There might be an, an, a more mature person who can help you, maybe a counselor who can help you. I offer up the elders every time I'm up here who can help you. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're a preacher, maybe, I know one, maybe he can help you. A faithful brother, a sister, somebody, anybody, but if somebody can be there for you, support you, help you, then tell yourself the truth and seek help. Truth means telling yourself all the truth, and so you need to be truthful. Be positive, yes, but be honest with yourself. Point number three, be pure. It's emphasized in the Scripture because God wants us to be that. He wants us to be like Him. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 14, Peter uses the example of our being children of God to be like our Father. And so in verse 14, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust in which you were in your ignorance. It's one thing to be ignorant. Paul said he was, 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 17. He said, I did it ignorant and unbelief. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's not an excuse, and it doesn't excuse. Paul still killed Christians, but he did it ignorantly and unbelief. It's one thing to be ignorant. It's another to do it with knowledge. Peter is talking to people who are brethren now. They have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you as holy, be yourselves holy, be holy yourselves in all behavior, for it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Sometimes the change that needs to occur in our lives is there because sin is in our lives. And if that's the case, the only thing to do is to stop that sin. You've got to get that sin out of your life. And while I'll not enumerate every possibility of sin, you, and you should know, though, the Bible has several lists of things that are sinful. You and I could read them in Romans 1, about 25 to 32. 
You can read in Galatians 5, about 19 to 21. You, you can read it in 1 Corinthians 6, about 9 through 11. Revelation 21, verse number 8, you'll find another list of sins. Now, in Galatians, you'll also find the phrase, because God did not enumerate every possible sin under the sun, but you will find the phrase, and such like. God doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't want us to walk in sin. He doesn't want us to practice sin. In fact, the exhortation for faithful, holy living is our salvation. God saved us so that we could be holy. We're not being holy so God can save us. It's the exact opposite. The salvation prompts the holiness. The salvation motivates the holiness. You'll notice how these passages began, as obedient children. They are children of God. Hear it in 1 John chapter 3. Listen to the way John says it in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 1. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 1, John says, see how great a love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it does not know him or did not know him. Beloved, now are we the children of God. It has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What a thought. To see him as he is. To be in his presence to be changed, to ultimately to have the eternal body, to be in the presence of God, and to see him in all of his glory, to see him as he is. John says in the very next verse, everyone who has this hope, what hope the one just spoken of? The hope of seeing him as he is. The hope of being with him in glory. Everyone who has this hope, what will they do? Everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Just as he is. What's the motivation for the pure life? You're children of God. What's the motivation for the pure life? The hope of heaven. The hope of being with God and seeing him as he is. How do I change then? Do not allow yourself to get comfortable with any amount of sin in your life. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says with reference to the changed lives of the brethren there. He says in verse number 1, therefore, now, he began this way back in chapter 4, and if you would, chapter 3, 2, and 1, ultimately, what God has done for them in the first three chapters, or nearly so, moves them to live for him in the second half of the book. But he says, therefore, be imitators of God, again, as beloved children. And what would you do? Walk in love? just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Notice verse number three. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
The King James would say, must not once be named among you as become its saints. He doesn't end in verse 3. You'll notice verse number 4. There must be no filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not convenient or fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. It seems to be the case that part of the false teacher's teaching in the first century was to tell the Christians the very thing that Paul is refuting. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what you do. You're going to be fine. God's not going to count it. You're all right. Paul, let nobody fool you. Let nobody deceive you. Let nobody trick you with these empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not partake with them. Friends, if you're going to be good to yourself, if you're going to love yourself, we are going to be and have to be pure. We're going to have to not be able to be comfortable with sin in any amount. Now, I know if you were to take what I've preached in the past and you take a different context, you would say, well, Eric, you're the one who's saying people aren't perfect. You're the one saying that people can't, uh, they're not going to be kicked out of light if you fall. Different context, but yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying now. What I'm saying now is you can't get comfortable with sin. The person in 1 John 1, 7 is not comfortable with sin. The person walking in the light as he is in the light is not okay with sin. What I'm saying is, well, you go to change. And, and sometimes you can, again, not be good to yourself by telling yourself the wrong thing. You, you could be deceived by your own self and mind. Now, I'll attribute it to Satan, but really it's your own mind doing it. But listen, you could be telling yourself, look how far you've come. Look how much progress you've made. You know what? If people knew where you came from, boy, they'd be impressed with you. I'm impressed with you. I mean, look, look at what you've done. Why don't you give yourself a little pat on the back? You know Eric did say be patient with yourself, so why don't you just take it easy? You know what? That little thing that you're doing, I know, I know, I know it's wrong. You know it's wrong, but listen, you've come so far, and so you owe yourself that one. You can keep that one. You can keep doing that. Nobody will ever know. They'll see the bigger picture, and they'll say, wow, look at you. And that little one right there, you can just keep. What I'm suggesting to you is this morning, don't get comfortable with any amount of sin. Don't be okay with keeping any amount of sin in your life. I'm not suggesting you may not stumble and fall. What I'm suggesting is don't keep a pet sin. Don't let it sit idly by, pet it, rub it, groom it, bathe it, wash it, clean it, and then just don't have a pet sin and be okay with that. Do not do that. That's not what the Bible is saying. Because if you do that, what will happen is that little sin will grow. And it will be more and more progressive in nature. And you will find yourself right back in the very dynamic that you needed to change in the first place. You tell yourself it's not that big a deal, and then it'll get progressively worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon, instead of you controlling it, it will enslave you. The way to get to bigger sin is to be okay with a little sin. Paul says, let it not once be named among you. It's not becoming for saints to be okay with sin. 
It's not right. And if you want to change, be different. You have to be pure. See sin for what it is. We talked about it a few, a few weeks ago. Be honest with yourself. Nobody starts with a lot of sin. They start with a little sin, and then it grows. Everybody dabbles at first, and then it becomes uncontrollable. We began, actually, if I could take your mind back to the beginning, we began with truth. And the idea of being made in the image of God and what that means, and if you'll accept the truth of that, and if you will then love yourself and be good to yourself, and you'll be patient with you. You'll be positive and honest with you. And you'll be pure. Not just, quote, unquote, of the big things. But you read the list of sins and you can see they get down to the heart and the intentions. And they include far more than immorality. Be good to yourself. Give yourself the best chance to succeed and under no circumstances, self-sabotage. Don't sabotage you in your efforts to change and be more like the Savior. If you're not a Christian this morning, we offer these invitations every time we're together. And we're thankful whenever somebody accepts the Lord's invitation and puts Christ on in baptism in obedience to the gospel. We had several that do it over the past several weeks, and we urge you to do it if that's what you need in your life. Because, friends, without Jesus, we simply can't live the life that God would want us to live, the life we hope to live. We can't do that without Jesus. The peace of mind, the comfort, the contentment, the joy, the love, the mercy, the goodness, all these flow from Jesus. The hope, the salvation, all of these flow from Jesus. Friends, without Jesus. Paul says if Christ does not rise, if the dead don't rise, his conclusion is let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus is our hope. And the resurrection is our hope. And heaven is our home. Would you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? you change your heart and your mind and repent, confess his name, and be buried with him in baptism, rise and walk in newness of life, be a new creation unto God. Then live faithfully and walk with him. If you've never done that, we beg you to do so this morning. If you have and you need to come home, our Father's arms are ever open, and he will, as Luke 15 shows, receive you back with joy. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.